We're in Luke 14. If you want to turn there. Sorry, I didn't have time to create a little thing on the YouVersion app, so you have to go old school and like grab your Bible. Luke 14. So um, I like Luke. Luke is the only person in the Bible that is not a Jew. Did you know that? Isn't that cool? Like he's the only writer that is not a Jew. I think by like it. He's like an outsider. And uh, Luke writes about women a lot. And he writes... This is my th- this is my friend atheist, and I was like, Cause I and he is, and we are. Why no up? Like you know. We were talking and talking and talking about Jesus and about this and this. And he, the one day, he's like, I, I can't get over it. I can't just, I, how am I going to tell people now that I'm a Christian? It's going to be like the worst thing. And he's got like tattoos and rides his bike and he's got like massive, like big crazy hair. And it's like a really crazy, like Scotsman and like over the top, larger than life person. And such a, it's such a like super good person. He's like, I just can't call myself a Christian. He's like, I just cannot. It's gonna be so embarrassing to like to tell people that. And I was talking to another friend of mine, who's, and uh, to Tom, and he said, When did calling yourself a Christian become or started to mean to conform? Like because that's what it means in his mind. It's like when I call myself a Christian, it means I conform. Like. And it never used to be like that. In the early Christian, in the early church, to call yourself a Christian was like this crazy thing. It was this, this radical, rebellious thing to do. It was to call yourself a Christian. And over the centuries, it's become like the norm and like the safe so much that my atheist friend doesn't want to call him that because it means that he conforms. So um, when Paul writes and he says, it's only through the Holy Spirit that you can say Jesus Christ is Lord. You know that text? I can't remember we've lost on that. I can't remember if it's Any Bible? <laughs> Thanks. I can't I can never remember text references. I'm terrible. But it's yeah, it says like 
It's only by the Spirit that you can say Jesus is Lord. Now, people take that text and they go, it's a way that you can test whether somebody really, really, really has the Holy Spirit in them. Right? And if they say Jesus is Lord, it means that they really, really, really have the Spirit in them and that, they, and that some people will take it even further and they say that there's no demons in that person because they can say that Jesus is Lord. And that's not what it means. <laughs> what Paul says, like in ancient Mediterranean culture, in like the Roman world, to call yourself a Christian would be such a crazy thing that the only reason that you would do that, the only reason that you would call yourself a Christian was because the Spirit was in you. Because then, only then can you be that crazy to call yourself a Christian, which kind of flips the whole thing up. And in the ancient, in the Roman world, um, there are temples and uh, gods and priests and priests and priestesses and rituals and everything. And these Christians said that there were these crazy people, that they were called atheists, ironically enough. The first Christians were called atheists by the Romans because they didn't have a temple. They didn't have priests or priestesses. And they didn't have offerings. And they didn't have holy days. And they were called atheists because they were so completely, completely different. And people couldn't understand what, what, the, hell these, what the hell are these people doing because they, they don't have gods, they don't have this, but they still have this kind of love feast and crazy. So um, this little text... Jesus actually, not attacks, but turns like two ideas and kind of turns them on their head, which, which is kind of cool. It makes them a little bit radical and a little rebellious. So I'm going to read through it from verse 1. It says, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Luke was also a doctor, like a physician. So whenever you read in Luke, he'll always describe the illness like a doctor does in a sense. So say, not, he wasn't just sick. He'll say like he had dropsy or he, had, or he was like, so just a side note. In front of a man was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and then sent him on his way. Then he asked them, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. So let's just stop there. We'll go further just now. So what's interesting about the setting is that Jesus talks to the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees in the time of Jesus was this kind of self-appointed group. They weren't like the priests. They were official they were kind of this almost self-appointed group that said the way that God's kingdom is going to come, the way that Israel is going to be completely restored, is if every Israelite or Jewish person will keep the law. If everybody keeps the law, then God will restore Israel. Right? So you had all these kind of different groups at the time, almost like political groups, you could say, that and everybody had the same goal that Israel would be restored as the center of you know in the world of religious teaching or spirituality and political power and everything that Israel be restored because at this time in history they were underneath Roman oppression came out of Babylon exile 400 years earlier and kind of went straight from there from the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks to the Romans so they were just oppressed by the oppression just changed at the top but they were oppressed all the time so they were waiting for this liberation, for the Messiah and all of that. So, 
Um, and all these little groups formed, and each group had a way to say how this is going to happen. So you had the priests, and the priests would say, offering, sacrifice. You have to bring sacrifices to the temple. That's the way Israel is going to be restored. Then you had the Pharisees, and the Pharisees would say, keeping the law. Keeping the law. If every single person in this country kept the law, Israel would be restored. And then you had the zealots. They said, by the sword. We need to chase these Romans out violently, have an uprising, have a revolt, which they tried a couple of times and failed miserably. Then you, had them. then you had the Essenes, which lived out in the desert, like in Qumran, and they said, by separation, if we separate ourselves from those that are unholy or unclean or not keeping the true way and are not real sons of God, or so they call themselves sons of light, then, then Israel will be restored. So you had all these kind of different groups. And the Pharisees were, there was one group that said, the law. You have to keep the law. And um, the Sabbath is the most holy day for a Jewish person. Not Yom Kippur, which is the day of atonement, but the Sabbath, like every single, which is now Saturday, which is the most holy day. It starts on Friday night, the sun sets and goes all the way to Saturday evening when the sun sets again. That's the Sabbath, right? And to keep this one day, and you have to keep the Sabbath is a big part of keeping the law. Now, the Sabbath laws are extremely complex. So the basic idea is they were, you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath, right? So now the teachers of the law, which is interesting that they are also present in this little chapter, is the teachers of the law in that time would be like your modern day, literally like lawyer or attorney. You would go to them and say, you know what, my neighbor, his fence is encroaching on my property and he's still one of my goats. What am I supposed to do? What does the law say? And they would study the law, meaning Le Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and then tell you, you know, this is your right, this is your right. Because religion and politics and everything was, is one thing. It's not like we have now where state and church is separate. It was one same thing. So if you would go to teach of the law and say, but, so Sabbath says, God says, I'm not allowed to work. What, what is work? Because if you want to keep the Sabbath, you need to know what work is. So they worked out this elaborate system to figure out what is work. So, and what they did, it's actually quite clever, is the way that the tabernacle was constructed in Exodus, like every single thing that you need to do to build a tabernacle, they considered work. So, you know, uh, woodwork, or metalwork, or weaving, or, you know, clearing the ground, or planting the cotton that you need to make the fabric. That you, so every single thing that was necessary to build the tabernacle, they considered work. So, and they came down to 40 things, ironically enough. 40 things that are considered work. And then these 40 things were broken down in like separate little things too. So it, became, it becomes really, really intricate and a little bit crazy. So stitching with a needle is considered work only beyond nine stitches for some reason. Spitting on the ground is considered work because what if you spit on the ground and there's a seed there and that seed starts to sprout and then you've created something. Lighting a match, li creating fire is work. So anything that has to do with lighting or... So even today, if an Orthodox Jew or so would not switch on a light during Sabbath or use any kind of anything that's electrical because in effect it's making fire and you needed fire to create the tabernacle to do the metal work to go so it goes all the way back to that 
So it, it becomes, it's super, super, super elaborate. There's only a certain amount of steps you need to take. And uh, it's crazy. So if you ever go to Israel and you go there and um, normally the flight that you take lands on Sabbath and you cannot get cappuccino anywhere. Like you can get, co I still don't know why, but you can get coffee, like normal kind of filter coffee, but you can't get cappuccino. Because somewhere in this whole system, there's a difference. In to be, so there's big, like these massive cloths over the espresso machines that says no cappuccino on Sabbath or no espresso on Sabbath. But filter is fine. <laughs> so I, I, I still don't get it. So, and then on Sabbath in Israel, you have to be very careful into which elevator you get because you get Sabbath elevators and you get normal heathen elevators. <laughs> and uh, so the normal heathen elevators, you can press the buttons, but the Sabbath elevators, it stops on every single floor so that you don't need to go into it and then press any buttons, which means you use electricity, which means you create fire, which means you're building the tabernacle, which means you're working. Right? So it gets really nuts. And um, in the time of Jesus, so the, also one of the basic thinking is you're allowed to keep things stable. There was this thinking, you're allowed to keep, to sustain something, but you're not allowed to make something better. Because be making it better means you're working or you're creating in essence. And the beautiful side of it is saying that it's only God that creates. So on the Sabbath, God rests from creating, which means you also have to rest from creating. So um, Celeste, who's a doctor, so as a doctor on the Sabbath, you're allowed to keep somebody stable, but you're not allowed to heal them. So I don't know how you, oh yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Like, is there a difference? So you're allowed to make them not die, but you're not allowed to make them better. So you have to kind of keep them. At the, so, when, so this discussion of an ox falling into a pit was like a discussion of the day, saying that you can, you can throw water down to the ox, and you can feed it, so it doesn't, like go, it doesn't go below the line, but you're not allowed to make it better. So this is why Jesus actually catches them out a little bit because at the same, so the whole discussion is what Jesus does. He takes this very conforming, restricting law and says in another part, he says, is the Sabbath is not, man was not created for the Sabbath, the Sabbath for man. So the Sabbath is something that is beautiful, celebrating creation, celebrating life and love and God taking care of his whole creation and all of that. And that's actually what this is about. And it actually is about healing. That's why they're so angry at him for healing on the Sabbath. Because you're not supposed to make somebody better. You can keep themselves, but not better. So they're actually angry at him for it. But he's, Jesus does that because he says, it, that's not what it's about. It's not about constricting. It's about liberating. And um, what's beautiful about the Sabbath is that it actually gives you a chance to rest. And rest is so massively important. There was a zoo in the States, I forgot which one, that discovered that the animals were really stressed. And they started exper experimenting with the animals, taking them out of public view, giving them a chance to rest, and then seeing what the ratio is. How many rest days do they need in order to be, stable, to be healthy? What the ratio is between days on exhibit and days you know, out of sight. 
and guess what was the ratio? One in seven. Yeah. One in seven was the ratio. You're like, well, wait a minute. Maybe this is like it's built into creation or something. Maybe there's more to this. So one in seven was the ratio for the animals to be healthy. They needed one rest day in seven. And rest is a beautiful thing. We all need rest. And uh, it's one of the, I suppose, sins of our society that we don't rest enough. So that's one thing. Sabbath was also always, um, in Jewish culture, even today, Friday night, if you're married, Sabbath is the day for, how should we put this? <laughs> Having fun. <laughs> Creation. <laughs> Saturday, Friday evening is the night for enjoying your spouse. Let's put it like that. Which is beautiful and awesome. There's a uh, Alain de Bouton, which uh, um, Angelica and I are huge fans of. He's a philosopher. And he has this great video on YouTube, Why God Wants You to Have Sex Once a Week. Right? which is kind of built into this whole idea. So Sabbath is a day for making love, it's for feasting, for eating good food, for resting. And it's beautiful and awesome, which is what it's supposed to be, right, as a principle. So same thing. <coughs> Jesus doesn't constrict. He makes it larger. And it doesn't put you in chains. It frees you, which is pretty awesome. So if you read further, he says, Then he asked them, if one of, oh no, sorry, a little bit further, uh, seven. When he noticed how the guests picked out the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. Jesus is not a very good dinner guest. Like, he just, if you invited him, like, his whole, he just messes up your whole party all the time. <laughs> he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back. And so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So Jesus, in a perfect Jesus way, attacks a, something that's a rule in society. So in that society, a meal was much more than just a meal. If you were invited to a meal, it means immediately that you had to reciprocate. So if that person invites you and he's of a certain status, then you have to do the same thing to them. And then it shows that you are in the same kind of social club. So there's no such thing as a free lunch in ancient times. It's always a social contract. So, and then there were places of importance at the table, the right hand of the person of the host would be the most important place and so it would go down all the way to like the end of the table. And uh, what would often happen in ancient times if you were, if they wanted to embarrass you, they would place you at the most least important place. If they wanted to like kick you out of the clique or out of the little WhatsApp group or whatever, they will put you at the, mo at the least important place and even if they want to embarrass you a little bit more, they'll give you rotten food. So that everybody there knows that this person is no longer in that social circle. 
So what Jesus does here is he flips that whole thing around. He rebels again. He doesn't conform. He rebels. And he says, well, when you come to a party, go sit at the lowest place. And nobody would do that in ancient times. It'd be like, it would be social suicide and economic suicide as well because the way the whole system worked was if you, needed, if you needed bread or you needed to trade somebody, you needed to be on the same social status as that person and then you can trade with them and ideally you need to get your kids to marry one another and then you can have that relationship always and be like a, so a wedding feast was nothing but was a social contract and an economic contract. And Jesus flips that whole system and says, well, this is not what it's about. And he sa- even says in the passage, don't invite those rich people because you want to try and climb the ladder as well. So you invite people that's maybe a little bit higher than you are because then they will maybe invite you back and then maybe you can get in a little bit higher. So it's this whole like, very intricate system. And uh, you would never eat with somebody that's lower than you because that would lower you. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't conform. He does a radical thing. And he says, well, invite the cripple and the lame and the blind because they can't repay you. And everybody would go, what what do you mean? That's exactly the point. That's why you invite people is so that they can repay you. But Jesus flips it around and says, invite those people, those people that can't repay you and do the other thing. And a long, long, long time ago, um, I was listening to this teacher and he said, he called it, it said the upside down kingdom of heaven it's like everything that society expects you to do is that God expects the other thing and if you can draw parallels in our society today if society expects you to be this then Christianity the odds are it's the upside down I've been watching a lot of stranger things the upside down right? but like a good upside down like a bad upside down and what is there in our, soci- in our society that says Christians look like this? This is what it means to be conformed. Or this is what it means to be a socially acceptable person. If you have to act in this way, you have to earn the mus- this much money, you have to be in this position, you have to have this qualification, you have to look like this or act like this or do like this. And then Christianity says, no, it's not like that. That's not important. What's important is spending time with the lame and the blind and the poor. When society says vengeance is the answer, you say, no, forgiveness is. And if you just look at our world, how this person is attacking that person, and this person is attacking that person, or that country is that person, or this group is that group, and it's just retaliation everywhere. And have you ever seen one of those groups stand up and say, you know what, we forgive those people? Not, not once, in every single terror attack you've seen, have you ever seen somebody go into news, any president, and say, we forgive those people. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be like the most insane thing? How angry do you think people will be if somebody would say that? If somebody would get up and say, but we forgive you. But that's not what people say. We say, we will retaliate. We will bomb the crap out of you. We will get you. We will do this. But that's not the Jesus way, is it? And even and in our own country, all the more. When a couple of years back, when it was roads must fall. Remember when it was the whole statue thing? And eventually it fell, and when it fell and everything was over, the, I think one of the scholarship funds says, well, now we're not giving scholarships anymore. Right? And you go, yay! You go, well, no, no. What if that scholarship fund just said, we know what, we know that you are angry. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to double everything. 
And they were just like, like Paul said, it would just heap like burning coals on somebody's head. Burning coals meaning you would, they would be ashamed, their face would become red. They would be ashamed for their own anger and their own vengeance if you just react with love. And isn't that, so if somebody says, I am a Christian, it should be a radical thing. It shouldn't mean like conforming and it shouldn't mean you're on higher moral ground. It should be, it should be somebody that's serving and somebody that forgives and somebody that loves unconditionally and like pushes harder. And like somebody, I think it was Jane, I think it was her, that said, don't cross, don't cross your ocean for somebody that doesn't want to cross a puddle for you. And then it was scratched out, and then it says, no, do cross oceans for somebody that won't cross a puddle for you. Go the extra mile, do the extra thing, even if that person doesn't want anything to do with you. Go, 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 push, 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 push. Because that's exactly what God does. If you think about God, how many times, well, how many people are in this room? 30, 40. How many times we as a group have rejected God? How many times? I mean, like, countless. Can you imagine how much that must hurt? And how God just comes back again and again and again and again and again. And that's radical. And that's what Jesus is about. This little section about the Sabbath and the meals. He goes, it's not about exclusion, it's about intrusion. And that's kind of what we want to build and want to be and what we should be. I think. But hey, <laughs> let's pray together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you teach us how to include rather than exclude. That you teach us how to celebrate life and to heal rather than constrain and conform. Thank you that you have liberated us so we can liberate others. Thank you that you love us and that you guide us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks.